Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast, conversations about impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have impact, the sweet moments, and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I help entrepreneurs grow successful businesses that make a difference in the world. Impact is more than mission, more than purpose, even more than your why. Impact is where your unique self and business meet the world and contribute to making it better for all of us. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so you can have your own unique impact. Today's guest on the podcast is Jeff Herman. Jeff opened his literary agency in the mid-1980s while in his mid-20s. He has made over 1,000 book deals, including many bestsellers. His own books include Jeff Herman's Guide to Publishers, Editors, and Literary Agents, with more than 500,000 copies sold, and Write the Perfect Book Proposal, co-authored with Deborah Herman. He has presented hundreds of workshops about writing and publishing and has been interviewed for dozens of publications and programs. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff. I'm delighted to have you here. Well, thank you for having me. It's my honor. So uh, you're an entrepreneur, um, and this podcast is, is uh, uh, our, our audience is mostly entrepreneurs and organizational leaders. So it seems like everybody wants to write a book, and many entrepreneurs have used their book to build credibility. Do you think that that's, that's a good thing? It's a, it's a trend worth continuing? You know, it, it never hurts. And, you know, I'm, I'm just going to say this because I've been around now doing this for about 30 years. Uh, it, it used to have a lot more cachet in the past because right. it was more difficult to do. Right. But now with all the uh, facilities that are available, it can be done very cheaply right. and very readily. And the person doesn't necessarily even have to be literate to do it. They can get somebody... Uh, to do it for, for low cost. And of course, so it's, it's more common than it used to be. It doesn't have the same impact that it might have, but it's, it's still extremely valuable nonetheless. Do you think that, uh, I mean, what you said about there being less cachet, do you think that's true for the, the traditional publishing route? I mean, that's your, that's your, main focus and area of expertise, you, you're a literary agent within that uh, traditional publishing process. Right. So, Well, as an insider, uh, definitely has tremendous cachet if you have a traditional publisher who is basically investing their resources in you. Uh, you have to realize that more than 99% of all the opportunities that cross a traditional publisher's desk whether they be agented or non-agented, are rejected. Whereas self-published books, the, the rejection rate is probably less than 0%, if that's possible. So <laughs> anybody who might be paying attention to whether it's, it's traditionally published or published by yours truly will take that into account. But let me add to that that not everybody is aware that there is a difference and won't pay attention to that if and when they see your book. So um, I know that you, in your book, which is actually this fabulous guide for people who are interested in getting published, and this you're on your 28th edition now, so it's you're constantly updating it. So what's the, what do you think are the, the big myths around publishing and, and getting getting your book published that people kind of fall into or, or traps that they fall into thinking about publishing? Well, they either think the myths are ironically, they either think it's too difficult or they think it's too easy. <laughs> it's one or the other on because there are all kinds of ways to beat the so-called system because of the high rejection rate, which is 99 plus percent, all kinds of obstructions and obstacles have been created. So it's your job as a writer not to put yourself in that 99%, but to just assume that you are part of that 1%, and then find ways, which we explain in the book and other people explain in their books, in which you are not going to step into the same traps 
that the other 99% of the people often do. So that you keep increasing the likelihood that you're going to get published traditionally. It's never an easy task, but it, the odds can always be moved closer and closer to the writer's favor if the writer makes deliberate, calculated choices along the way. So what are some of those choices? What are, what's the path that you recommend for increasing your chances of getting published? Well, the first thing you have to do is realize that nobody's in it for you. They're all in it for themselves. Okay. <laughs> that, that's the, you know, and entrepreneurs understand that. And, you know, sure. even if they don't articulate it, that right. the best value for anyone is to create value for others. Uh, so you need to approach it. What's in it for the agent? What's in it for the publisher? Uh, as a baseline, it's better to try to get an agent first because the agents have quality access to the traditional publishers because the traditional publishers rely upon the agents to do the actual screening. And they know that if it comes in from a publisher, from an agent who they have an ongoing relationship with, that the work has effectively been vetted and basically screened for them. So they have a, an agent that they work with regularly and whose judgment they trust, that all goes into it. So your credibility plays a big role in that too. Right. They know that the agent is not going to waste their time. The editor knows that the agent will not waste his or her time because the agent is only working on a commission. The agent isn't getting paid to just pitch books back and forth. Mm -hmm. uh, and an agent who loses his or her credibility with an editor uh, that's an agent who won't be able to continue to do business with that editor. Right. So the agent really has to be very uh, careful and discerning about what he or she represents. So the, the question is, first, figure out how to get an agent. However, there's a layer to this. It's possible to still get published traditionally, even if you don't have an agent. Hmm. And there are ways to do that. Uh, the first thing towards getting an agent is you have to determine who the agents are that represent the kinds of books that you want to write. Uh, for instance, there are agents who specialize primarily in romance novels. So you really want to focus in on the agents who might be eligible for you. And there are crucial ways to do that. Uh, you can network with other people in your category who have agents and ask if you can drop their name or just ask the name of the, who the name of the agent. Is. You can buy Jeff Herman's guide because we give the names of the agents. You've got a great uh, list of agents in there and I love your questions. I mean, including a few rogue ones, like do you believe the earth was created a few thousand years ago or several billion years ago? So, <laughs> well, and, yeah. And that you ask, you ask other really great questions. I just, I just was uh, love the humor of that. Yeah, and I do that deliberately, not because their answer is germane in a literal sense uh -huh. to what the process is, but just to kind of shake it up a little bit, wake right. up the agent, and maybe the agent will start saying things that reveal who or she is on a deeper level right. than just uh, data. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's very easy in today's environment to collect data but data doesn't really give us a lot of variation as to who the human beings are right. in, in this business. So yeah, yeah that was why I, I do things like that. <laughs> so what uh, do you think? Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, so you need to find who they are. The next thing to do is to get your, your, well, not so much your face, but your writing in front of them or your idea in front of them so that they will actually give it quality consideration. Uh, the typical agent is getting hundreds of unknown unsolicited submissions uh, every week, if not every month. So they need to find a way to quickly screen through everything they're getting. And they're only going to look for what they think in turn they can sell to a publisher. So you really need to open the dialogue in, the, in what's known as a pitch letter or a query letter by saying, by being very clear 
about what your book is, like right in, right in the opening paragraph, and be very clear about why you are a very good candidate to write a book about that. Mm-hmm. And that's really where the process begins. Because if that clarity comes through and the agent and ultimately the publisher sees that you are a, a good individual, qualified individual on all levels to write that book, uh, the dialogue begins from there. So what do you think makes a great agent? Because, you, I mean, it's a powerfully valuable service to writers um, to be able to represent you to, to know which publishers to approach to really offer that initial, um, I guess, stamp of approval on your work um, and, you know, to kind of explain how they earn their, your, your 15%. Uh, fee. What do you think is is uh, makes a really great agent? Okay, that's a, that's a great <laughs> question. What makes a great uh, like all specialized professionals? Uh, I would say that every agent could be great on a given day. Some agents are great more of the time. Some agents are great less of the time. It's it's very hard to to define it uh, except. Like with anything else, you have to look at the agent's record because the track record is what is going to best define what's going to happen going forward. So what you want to do is, well, first you have to remember you have to sell yourself to the agent because if the agent doesn't yet know that he or she needs to pay attention to you, uh, the last thing they're going to do is start selling themselves to you. So first you have to Convince the agent that you are somebody who they might want to work with for their own self-interest. Mm-hmm. Once, once you cross, and that's sales. So once you cross that barrier, then it's time for you to start having the agent or, uh, yeah, the agent to start selling him or herself to you. Uh, the, the first place I would begin is to ask for a list of everything that the agent has basically sold to publishers, uh, who the publisher was, the name of the book, who the uh, author was. And you could look these books up on Amazon, you may be familiar with these books, but that, that's the most documented track record that you're going to find. If an agent doesn't have a track record, there's no reason why all of a sudden you are going to establish a track record for them uh, unless they're new and you just have a lot of confidence that they have the skill set to, to get a hot start and you're one of their uh, first clients. And that's okay, too. We all have to start from somewhere, even agents. Uh, but I would say that's uh, the best qualification is really what they've done to the present and that they're still active doing it, that these aren't books that were represented five, four, or ten years ago that this person is actively agenting. And then have a telephone conversation, you know, just talk, you know, business, ask what their process is, ask, you know, questions like, you know, what drew you to my book? What do you think are the prospects of getting a publisher for my book? What can I do to help you help me? Things like that, you know, very legitimate business-oriented questions. And then if for some reason you're uncomfortable with the answers or you need more clarification, go for it. But, you know, that will establish for you whether or not that this is going to be a consistent, transparent relationship. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like any business relationship. You want to have a conversation about what are the business prospects, um, in this case, a book. And, and also, is this relationship, is this somebody that I can relate to that I can, you know, have a good conversation with as an early indicator. Right. And just like if you're hiring someone for anything else, whether it be a lawyer, an employee, uh, you don't necessarily have to like the person or feel that you want to hang out with that person. Okay. Mm -hmm. Those are luxuries and maybe even beyond the boundary of what's necessary. What you need is somebody who is going to do the job for you. It's, it's that simple. Mm -hmm. So, so once you decided on an agent, you're able to uh, kind of get 
through that initial step in the process, then, then what can writers expect after that? Well, uh, assuming that it's a nonfiction book, you do not need to have the full manuscript. It's probably better that you don't. What you will need in the industry protocol is what's known as a book proposal, which is basically a presentation about the book and about you as the author. And one of the crucial things in there for the agent and ultimately the publisher, because the agent is just reflecting the publisher's requirements or demands, is that you have to demonstrate how you can actually promote the book and market the book. Uh, because the publisher can, has to actually follow the author when it comes to marketing books. Uh, and that's one of the myths, the assumption that once you have a publisher, you have a market. And that's not true. Uh, and a lot of publishers and a lot of uh, authors have a complete disconnection there because the publisher made an assumption that the author was going to be more dynamic. And the author, there just was a communication breakdown. The author didn't realize that the publisher was essentially going to rely upon his or her resources mm. to market the book. And yeah. as a result, very few books are sold. Well, and, and you, can, uh, you can expect that your promotion of the book is going to be, for most people at least, is, is likely going to exceed that of what the publisher does. Is that fair to say? Yeah, the, the, in my experience, uh, you will never really, in, in my experience, and I love publishers, they will never actually give you a clear answer about what they do, or at least they won't give you an answer that most people who are new to the business will understand. It's very easy to misinterpret what a publisher will tell you when you ask that question, because they will give you such a general answer, and that's just institutionalized. And I don't think it's deliberate because it happens again and again and again. Uh, the, the editor will say something like, well, we'll give it to our publicity department and our sales and marketing department. <laughs> now, the author may fill that with all kinds of grandiose ideas as to what that means. But Sending it, you on a book tour, <laughs> staying in right. hotels. Oh, yeah. But none of those things would have been said. <laughs> if the author asked a direct question, am I going on a book tour? Then the editor would say probably not. Yeah. Uh, there are exceptions to that. But the editor, if, you, if a direct question is asked, a direct question will be, uh, answer will be forthcoming. If a general question is asked, a very general answer will be presented. And I find that authors will, who are new to this will tend to fill that generality with their own expectations. So it's a good idea to ask publishers specific direct questions when you get to that stage. Right. And, but if you have an agent, you'll already know what not to bother asking. Right. <laughs> okay. Right. <laughs> okay. I mean, cause I know what uh, publishers are asking me when a publisher is interested in something as an agent that I present to them and they think the author is great and they think the idea is great. It's not something they have on their list yet. And they see an emerging market for it. The next thing they might say to me is, so how can the author help guarantee that we're going to sell through 10,000 copies in the first year. That's what the author, that's what the publisher will say to me. Mm -hmm. I don't know that they'll say that necessarily to the author, but then I'll go back to the author and I'll say, so how can we virtually show that you are going to be able to sell 10,000 copies? Mm -hmm. Because the publisher is asking us to show it. We can't ask them to show it. Uh, and then what we do is we look at the author's platform. That's the term of art today, is mm -hmm. platform. Now, if the author has had self-published product or other products which have sold in the tens of thousands, that's a very good indication. If the, again, it's track record. Right. If the author has engagement, not, not a, a list that they bought from Bangladesh, but actual engagement with tens of thousands of individuals through social media, mm -hmm. that's a very positive indication. Uh, if they're doing podcasts, which demonstrably have tens of thousands of actual listeners, visitors, that's a very good marker. So you have to, again, look at things that can be documented. It's very easy to come in, just like the publisher often does, come in and say, oh, yeah, well, once I have the book out there, I'm going to go out and promote it. 
That's a very general answer. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not going to close the deal in most cases. Well, and promoting the book is just as big of an undertaking almost as, as the book itself, especially if you don't have an established platform of, of followers. Then it, you're probably, if you do not yet have the followers, the marketplace, the fan base, the people who are waiting to click to buy your book, you're pro and you want a traditional publisher, it's possible. I never say never, ever, never, ever. There's all kinds of variations. But it's possible that you're putting the cart before the horse mm -hmm. if you do not yet have an established customer base, mm -hmm. whether it's because you're out on the road doing presentations, you can sell them back to the room, or you can give everybody a, an easy click. Uh, and then you have to understand there are two variations to the book marketplace. There's traditional distribution, which represents about 50% now of the marketplace. Traditional distribution is the Barnes and Nobles, the Books and Millions, the Powells, and then down from there, thousands of mom and pop bookstores. So physical booksellers. Right. Yeah. And, and that is a, a different kind of marketing than, say, what you're going to drive through Amazon or what you're going to drive through your own websites. Even though it's, you may still have like a traditional brand name publisher, but there are still there are some books that are keyed to sell very well through bookstores. And those are the ones that will show up on the bestseller lists, most likely. And then there are ones that are more keyed to just show up through online sellers, such as Amazon, or maybe as an ebook on Kindle. Some books do very, very well as Kindle, uh, on, you know, but they don't do very well as hard copy. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't realize there was that distinction of, of bookstores likely being the source of, of being on a bestseller list, because I know there are strategies out there um, being used by people to promote their book online. And, uh, you know, they even give away copies of the book for the cost of shipping as a way to bump up their numbers. Well, that won't show up on uh, any of the lists. Mm, okay. uh, it really has to at least funnel through barnesandnoble.com or amazon or indie.com. It's still, you know, those do get counted. Uh, but you see, you also have to understand there are two kinds of customers, at least two kinds. The kind of customer who actually likes and enjoys and is accustomed to going into a bookstore to buy mm -hmm. his or her books. Mm -hmm. And then the kind of customer who buys a lot of books, but is very unlikely to ever go to a bookstore to do it. And those are two different personalities and two different inclinations. And there's different ways to attach to both of those customers. Ideally, you'll attach to both. Okay. Well, um, something you talk about in the book is ignored writer syndrome. <laughs> and uh, it made me think of that apocryphal story that Jack Canfield tells. And Jack has actually worked with you as well. Yes. Yes. Um, he that he approached fifty publishers before I think it was fifty before his first chicken. Yeah, season. yours truly. I was the agent. Ah, okay. Oh wow, I didn't. I know. was uh, nineteen ninety. Okay. Uh, I think I don't know if I was even thirty years old yet at the wow. time. Oh, that's, uh, great. <laughs> that's great. Well, I, I wondered, you know, what's the line between clarity of your vision and therefore, you know, persistence and just sticking with it until you find somebody versus a bad book or a bad book proposal, or you're just going about it the wrong way. Well, there's, that's a very, there's a very good uh, complicated alchemy around that. Uh, sometimes your book is not being picked up simply because it's not being presented right, or it may be not be a good product. Okay. We have to accept that. Right. Uh, on the other hand, every, almost every, including Jack Canfield, almost every successful writer, whether nonfiction or fiction, has a story of pain, okay? Has a road <laughs> of pain behind them, which is now a memory, or though it could be recurrent, okay? It, there is a zigzag to this. People have their moments and they lose their moments and then struggle to get their moments back. We all know that. Uh, so with that, 
there's no, it's very unusual that you find an overnight success, even though it may appear that way because you never, gee, I never heard of that person before. But that person may have been pounding the pavement most likely for a very long time right. until they figured it out or just got lucky. Uh, and, and in my mind, luck really means that you figured it out. You just didn't know that you figured it out. Uh, <laughs> you didn't see what you figured out. Right. Uh, so you think you got lucky. Uh, but uh, yeah, you've got to look at whether or not it's, uh, you have to always be willing to objectively evaluate whether you are really doing a good job with the way you're pitching it, with, with, the, with what you're showing people. And you always have to be willing to reconstruct what you're doing. It doesn't mean you have to, to switch off the, uh, the concept. It just means that you need to represent it in a different way or represent, re-engineer the way you are appearing uh, as the author behind this project. And that's just a process that, that can take time or it can happen very quickly. Uh, you also have to evaluate the fact that maybe what you want to publish isn't really appropriate for the publishers. It's not that it's a bad product. Like with Chicken Soup, the disconnect there is that it really was not an appropriate product for the New York-based publishing uh, culture. Hmm. It was more... Uh, it was more in line with the 30, at the time, the 30 million people who perhaps were reading People magazine. Hmm. Uh, and more, and I, I believe today, as much as 30 years ago or whatever it was, uh, book publishers do not really publish product for the 30 million people who are reading popular magazines, other than maybe romance novels and mass market mysteries. Mm -hmm. uh, most of their nonfiction, as it was over 100 years ago, is really geared towards a, an elite readership. Right. And so when they get something that is really in the sweet spot of People magazine, they may not see it and they may not get it. And it may be that they shouldn't even be publishing it because they don't know how to sell it to that population anyway. Mm -hmm. So the, that particular book ended up going to a small, obscure, yet traditional publisher uh, in Florida, outside of the New York City matrix, who had an understanding about how you sell to the vast mass of readers that the New York-oriented publishers are not paying attention to. Right, and obviously they, you all did an amazing job at it because those uh, books have just taken mostly on. Jack, mostly Jack and Mark. They really took it on, and they were relentless and, mm. and very dedicated. Yeah, that's great. Well, some things you said in the book uh, surprised me about what you said about writers. And something you said, uh, actually in the dedication of your book, you said you are needed, and, and you later say um, that, Writers are, can be spiritual messengers that we're all here to improve the lives of one another. Can you talk, talk about that and your, your views on writers? And Yeah, I think that the, uh, the idea of spiritual messengers, that probably was in someone else's essay, because that's not, I mean, I, I'm fine with that. It's just not the way I usually uh, say things. But uh, everybody is needed. And everybody, as far as I'm concerned, has something useful and constructive to say. And you have to start from that baseline. You, you can't start from the baseline of, do I have something to say? You really have to start from the baseline. I have something to say, and it will be a benefit. And you start from there. But of course, you need to articulate to yourself what it is you want to say, and you need to figure out how to say it so that other people can hear it understand it and apply it. And that's the beginning, that's the germination of a book. Mm -hmm. so, so it begins there. Yeah, no, that's great. I, um, I, I'm really interested in, I mean, you had some great success quite early on in your career. Um, you worked on the, the massive bestseller, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. You worked on the first Chicken Soup for the Soul book. Did that, do you think that helped you because it happened fairly early on that, that did that help you have more impact in the way that you want to have it? Or was it a challenge in some ways? 
Well, I, the way I look at it, going back all that time, uh, is you know when you're 26 years old and going out on your own, it's very easy not to know what you don't know, which <laughs> right. can be a great benefit because once you start to know what you don't know, that can be kind of paralyzing and scary. <laughs> and the point is, we only, whether you've been doing it for 30 odd years like me, or you're doing it for three days, we all only know really a fraction of what we need to know. I, I, don't, I don't care how long you've been doing this or anything for that matter. Uh, I, I really try very hard to remind myself every day that there's very little I know about what I'm doing. And I need to be very open to learning something that I didn't know. Uh, and that helps me, you know, that because otherwise, you know, I could be as arrogant uh, as anybody. Uh, but uh, yeah, having the, uh, not knowing that there were certain things that I maybe shouldn't have even been trying to do, or that that's just not the way it's done, you know, uh, would have been a real obstruction for me. And the point was, I didn't know that you weren't supposed to do it that way or you weren't supposed to make uh, go about uh, follow a certain method. I didn't know that. I didn't know what the rules were. Right. So I, I assumed what the rules were based on uh, earlier experience, uh, which wasn't that deep. So not knowing what the rules were and uh, not even really knowing or knowing that there could be a starting point, not even knowing that there should be a starting point, I think that turned out very well for me. Mm -hmm. because I was able to just jump into the deep end of the pool and swim. And, you know, the other thing about that is I don't ever say, well, I was able to do these things almost, you know, right away. I don't say it's because I was brilliant. I think it was just because I just wanted to do it. And, mm -hmm. you know, I was just, I didn't want to stop doing it. And I was willing to splash around and swallow some water and, uh, you know, worry about a little bit swallowing that water. But I was also willing to know that, you know, I, I, I knew how to swim one way or another. Right. And also I didn't have a family to support. That's the other benefit of being a young person when mm -hmm. you're first starting out on your own. Sure. Uh, I, and I didn't have high material expectations for myself. I didn't have high material <laughs> needs. Uh, I, you know, so I was willing to, uh, and was perfectly happy, you know, to basically have a very modest lifestyle while whatever resources I was generating had to be put right back. Yeah. So th those are the kinds of qualities thinking back to it. And also thinking back to it, uh, I think people like youth, it's, you know, some people are afraid of it. They find it threatening. But I think, I, you know, a lot of people, they see in youth an energy that they remember. Yeah, sure. You know, and it, that's energetic and that's very contagious, that optimism, that sense of, yeah, we could do that. Because someone who is young hasn't heard as much as someone who is older. No, you can't do that. You know, that's, that's right. all over the place. Well, Jeff, what do you see as the impact that you have with with what you do? Why why do you do it? Why is it important to you? Well, with with the books and the information I give out, my my motivation actually is it makes me feel good to give people a sense of empowerment and uh, confidence, mm -hmm. so that they will persevere. What what I don't like seeing is when a system drives a wedge uh, in, in inside of somebody's aspirations. Uh, and, and that doesn't feel right to me. When, when I was first coming into the business, I did not like the fact that there was a certain institutionalized arrogance about it and that there were these very rigid walls which were keeping everybody out, regardless mm -hmm. of quality. And mm -hmm. I didn't like that. So... You know, and that also, that kind of idealism is something else that comes with youth. You know, and I felt that there had to be much more transparency about how to penetrate this system so that at least you had a chance to get a quality rejection and, and not just get rejected because you couldn't get access. Mm -hmm. So that's why I was into the transparency of giving out names and information. 
not just data, but real information. Well, you tell this story in the book about someone who was frustrated about not being published, and he repackaged the book, The, the Yearling, which is yes. sold many copies. A film was made of it with Gregory Peck, and that uh, it also did not um, succeed in the gauntlet of, of getting published. Well, his, it, it did, you know, The Yearling is a backlist classic, which yeah. over its lifetime has sold many millions of copies and is still probably selling tens of thousands of copies a year as a, uh, really for school systems. Mm-hmm. It's a novel. Uh, this particular writer, and this goes back to the 1990s now, but the process really is the same. This particular writer had a novel and he couldn't get anybody to even read it. It He would send it to publishers and they would just say, you have to have an agent. He would send it to agents and they really weren't reading it. They would send it right back. So he decided to take the yearling and he basically turns it into a raw looking manuscript. Everything was hard copy back then. Nothing was digitized. And uh, he changed the name of the book and he changed the name of the author, the gender of the author, made up a name and just did it the way you're not supposed to do it. He made unagented, unsolicited submissions to about 20 traditional publishers of the entire manuscript, including to the publisher who has sold millions of copies of the book. Hmm. Uh, And the responses he got were entirely predictable by those of us who know the system. In some cases, he never heard anything. In other cases, he got back a form letter, basically sending back the manuscript unopened, saying, you know, you're unagented, unsolicited. In other cases, he did get back an actually personalized letter, usually from somebody who was an assistant to an assistant, whose job it was to go through what's known as the slush pile, the unagented, unsolicited submissions. And these were, you know, qualified rejection letters basically telling this individual why his or her man why well him why his manuscript wasn't ready for prime time uh he got one of these rejection letters from the publisher who had been publishing the book for 50 years and it sold millions of copies but here the assistant to the assistant was telling him it's not yet ready (laughs) so he gave it to a wire service at that time the way things would go viral is you had to get the upi or the associated press uh to run a story about you so he gave it to the wire services and it went viral how this guy took the yearling and he couldn't get anybody to publish it I guess it served to the purpose of, of highlighting the process and how um, people who aren't, who don't know it, are really uh, putting themselves at a serious disadvantage. I mean, you talked at the beginning about, you know, more than 99% of uh, the submissions don't go through, but I'd, I'd love to touch on the, um, the industry um, just in kind of give, give an overview of that. And I know that there's, I mean, three main realms. There's the big five, like Hachette, HarperCollins, Macmillan, Penguin Random House, and Simon Schuster. Then there are a whole bunch of mid-sized kind of independents. And then there's also this whole realm of ebooks and self-publishing. So what do you see as the role of that, if anything? And, uh, you know, how, how is that affecting the industry and, and getting really good books out there? Okay, well, it, it's sort of a triage, th- those three, the trilateral uh, ways of publishing. Uh, my uh, personal uh, uh, concern with the Big Five is I come from an era in which there really wasn't a Big Five. There was maybe a Big One. Mm-hmm. And then there were dozens and dozens of entrepreneurial mom-and-pop publishing companies, all of which were very viable. And what happened, as happened, has, has happened in many industries over the past 25 years, is there's been a huge consolidation of resources into what's now called the Big Five. But to the extent that even the publishing properties within these Big Five are a very small fraction of what these Big Five companies are actually doing. Uh, which is they're really oriented towards film and TV and cable and uh, websites, uh, subscription-based or ad-based websites. Mm-hmm. And the book publishing parts are, are a very small fraction of their revenue. And, and, may, not, and yeah. may or may not be profitable even. Right. There may be lots of reasons why they want to maintain these houses, cultural reasons, 
uh, which are basically loss leaders for a lot of them. Mm -hmm. So that diminishment of personality uh, bothers me, but there's nothing, I, I don't think there's anything we could do about it. That's just the way it is. Now, thankfully, there are still a large number, not nearly what there used to be, but a large number of so-called independent publishers. Some of them are billion dollar companies, by the way, but they're not part of the big five constellation. So they're considered an independent, even if they're a huge company. And some of them are doing maybe only 20 books a year and are barely a seven-figure entity with maybe a couple of employees, but they're still doing traditional publishing and making a difference. And so the real creativity is really going to, the risk-taking is really going to be seen by the human-based assets as opposed to the corporate-based assets right. because corporate-based has a different master mm -hmm. than uh, the human-based, the personality-based companies. Uh, and both are perfectly viable as publishers. You will get a smaller advance uh, from an independent than you might get from a big five simply because there's less capitalization to go around. Mm -hmm. But as far as skill set at selling and publishing the book, it's equal. Hmm. Or it could even be superior sometimes from the independents because they have a more hands-on, less, uh, less cookie-cutter approach to the way they're doing things. Well, they may have uh, specialized knowledge about their niche and their audience. Is that yes, true? Yes, yes. And they're willing to uh, put their heart into it, not just whether or not they're going to get a bonus at the end of the year or even keep their job. Uh, and and that, that will shape an editor's decision-making at a big five is, gee, I really love this. I would love to take a risk with this, but if it doesn't do well, uh, I could be out of a job next year. Uh, whereas if you own the company or you work for the person who owns the company, uh, it's a different culture. Uh, then the, the self-publishing is, of course, still very new and still finding itself. Uh, the benefit and the, and the problem at the same time are melded together. The benefit is anybody can do it. The, the problem is that anybody can do it. So the, there's tremendous noise out there of product with very little discernment in between. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these uh, sites, whether it be CreateSpace or Smashwords, uh, close to 100%, and they will tell you this, close to 100% of the book product that is uploaded onto that their site's are selling less than 10 copies a year. I, I know, I was shocked to read that in your book. Right. <laughs> they, they will take anybody because it doesn't cost them anything sure. to let anybody jump on the site, okay? And, but just because you're on the site doesn't mean that anybody will know you're on the site and any, nobody other than your relatives are going to buy or gonna download or get a POD off those sites. <laughs> now, that said, there are thousands of people who have generated de facto bestsellers, even if it's not on the bestseller list because none of it went through a bookstore, but they have generated de facto bestsellers because they were able to figure out how to market themselves and their book in a way that generated huge traffic and huge downloads right. of the book. And that, that's a science which is still figuring itself out. A lot of people think they've done it, uh, and they probably have done it, but my concern is that the rules are always shifting. Right, yeah. Well, um, yeah, I, I feel like there's so many topics I'd love to delve into with you, Jeff. I mean, there's all kinds of things in your book about uh, query letters and uh, book proposals, and you have another book about book proposals, and all the things that really help go into creating a good deal, and even how to look at rejection or how to how to deal with it. All all of that is in your book. So I, I really encourage people to um, to have a look at the book and really uh, benefit from all the great information that you have in there. Um, so uh, just as a way to, to wrap up these interviews, I always ask three rapid round questions. Um, are, you, are you game? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So the first one is, what's the biggest thing you've learned about having impact? Uh, having impact with the marketplace? 
having impact with the work that you do, either on writers or on the marketplace? Uh, what I find is, uh, just speaking off the cuff, for me, it's doing a good job for people mm -hmm. and being doing my best to be clear with people about what their expectations should be, about what we can do together to, to achieve that person's goals mm -hmm. and wh where they need to do some dancing and where they can delegate. And uh, so I would say that's where I have the most impact is just being very clear and very dedicated to the commitments I make. And that's uh, appreciated, I'm sure, as uh, someone coming into, especially first-time authors, that would be so crucially important. Second question is, what is the one thing you've consistently done that, that's contributed to your success and impact the most? Uh, tenacity. <laughs> and and that, that's fortunately not a forced uh, characteristic. That, that's just one of the characteristics that I came with. Uh, right. You know, other people have other qualities that are equally or, you know, uh, as important. Uh, and when I say tenacity, I don't mean stubbornness. Uh, because to me, stubbornness means you're unwilling to change your clothes, <laughs> basically. Right. Right. You, you think, well, this is the way I'm going to do it, and other people have to uh, conform to the way I'm going to do it and have to adjust to me. Uh, and, and that's not what I'm talking about. With tenacity, I mean, is you, you can take the pain of rejection. You can take the disappointment. You can take the setbacks and still just come right back and start doing it more and more and more. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've, you know, I've made that commitment. And I think that, you know, for me, speaking for me, that's been very important. And I, I do have to push myself to always be very open-minded about the way people are changing, the way generations are changing, the way technology and the marketplace is changing. And that's not an easy, I don't think that's easy for anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, well, no, some people, I think, just intuitively, regardless of age, are able to make those leaps. Wherever the technology is going, they're there. Uh, or wherever the culture is going, because the culture is actually more important than the technology. And it's never clear whether the technology is pulling the culture or if the culture is pulling the technology. I, I sense that it's a little bit of each. But yeah. my personal challenge is to always try to understand what that is and where it's going. Yeah. Well, and that's part of growth, part of learning. And uh, I mean, you're being committed to it. That's uh, uh, an important part of your own development. Yeah, I'll sure. give you an example. Uh, yeah. I am one of the few people I know, personally or professionally, who refuses to own a smartphone. <laughs> you're, Every, you're a holdout. Yeah, yes. <laughs> uh, everything I do is done on a desktop uh, when I'm at work. And if somebody needs to reach me in an emergency, they, they probably know how to. But I have found that emergencies are very, very rare, okay? Right. And we know before when there might be one. Uh, I don't feel that I need to be responding to someone uh, while, you know, while I'm eating dinner or while I'm sleeping <laughs> or, <laughs> or when I'm taking a day off. You know, it can usually wait. And I refuse to adapt uh, that particular uh, technology. Yeah, I admire your willingness to stick to that. I mean, that's something people are finding now is having to back off from that dependence on devices, and you're you're already there. So it, it has diminishing returns. I see with my yeah. wife how it's uh, she can't stay off of it. Yeah, it's a tough one. Well, uh, Jeff, the last question is: uh, What's one piece of advice that you'd offer to other uh, to writers and to people that are wanting to have an impact with their work, what would you say to them? Well, they really need to, it really begins with knowing themselves. Uh, they shouldn't approach it like, oh, I want to become rich and famous and powerful. Uh, they can do that. I shouldn't say they shouldn't. But, you know, to me, it's more valuable and, and what they generate will be more valuable and more sustaining if they actually begin with what, how can I create value, you know, and start thinking or articulating to themselves the specific message or messages or applications or methods or values that they can bring to their community. And that's the other key word, 
who are who is their community or communities that they want to be a part of and it's not just a question of pounding information to that community but to think about ways of becoming a part of that community so that you're not just broadcasting to them through your written words but that they are broadcasting back to you through their impressions of your material and their own ideas and that's you know that's the way i would approach it really as a collaborative process that begins internally and then works its way out I love the way you put that because so often people say the people you want to serve, and that's a very unidirectional thing as opposed to how can you engage, be part of the community and have this ongoing back and forth. It's a great way of putting it. Thank you. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. I I know that this is going to be super valuable for anyone who's thinking about writing a book is writing one and is working on getting it published. And and I know your book will be an incredible resource for them. So thank you so much for sharing what you have here today. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. So if people want to get in touch with you uh, and want to buy your book, where would be places they can reach out for that? Okay, they can buy the book through um, traditionally published (laughs) through New World Library. They can uh, get the book uh, on any of the online retailers or Uh, Theoretically, they can get the book through any bookstore. If the bookstore does not have it, the bookstore should be able to get it for them uh, within a day or two. Uh, And if they want to reach me with any questions or they want to present a book idea to me, that's fine. Uh, My email, my personal email address, I'll give it out here, is jeff, J-E-F-F, at jeffherman.com. J-E-F-F-H-E-R-1-R-M-A-N-1-N.com. Jeff at jeffherman.com. Great. Well, Jeff, thank you again for being here. It's been such a pleasure and I appreciate the impact you're having with your work. Thank you. Join us for more episodes. Subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast on iTunes or Stitcher Radio so you'll know as soon as new episodes are available. You can even help spread the word. Leave a review if you like what you've heard. Thanks for listening. Until next time, for ongoing support so you can have your own impact, join our community of entrepreneurs like you by liking the Work Alchemy Facebook page.